Seminars, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Louise Kemp. Today, our guest is Dr. Mark Tessiamo, Carson Family Professor and President of Rockefeller University in New York. We'll be speaking with him about fundamental discoveries of new axon guidance molecules, his career path with many different roles from basic translational science, and exciting unsolved mysteries in the field of axon guidance. All this and more coming up. We are here today with Mark Tessier-Levine, Carson Family Professor and President of Rockefeller University in New York. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Tessier-Levine. Thank you. So you were born in Canada and spent a significant fraction of your youth in Europe, but then most of your career in the U.S. What opportunities, ideas, or forces guided you to these places? I did spend a lot of time in Europe as a child. My father was posted to uh, London and, and Brussels, um, were Canadian. And uh, by the time I finished uh, high school, uh, I, I considered myself pretty European, went to a French school uh, in Belgium. But I, I really wanted to learn more about Canada. Uh, we'd been out of the country for about 10 years. And so I, I decided to go back to Canada uh, to go to McGill to do my undergraduate degree in, in physics. And then I was fortunate to earn a, a scholarship that enabled me to go back to Europe, to Oxford. And then from there, I, I moved to, uh, to London to do my PhD with actually a little hiatus back in Canada for a year. So I, I was you know, moving back and forth between Europe and Canada, feeling, feeling very comfortable in both places. But after mm-hmm. my PhD, I, I really wanted to come to the, the U.S. This was you know, the, the, the late 80s. And American science was clearly just so exciting um, that I, I really felt I, I wanted to, to come here and, and sample it, not thinking uh, at the time that I would necessarily stay in the States for the rest of my career. But after I got here, um, a combination of the opportunities and, and also you know, personal reasons, I met my wife, um, we ended up staying in, in the U.S. But I love all of the places where I've lived, but I'm, I'm very happy that I had the opportunity to come to the States and, and to stay here. So in, yeah. in particular, choosing to work with Tom Jessel for your postdoc in the area of axonal pathfinding, why did you choose this question and how did you decide on that question? Yes, well, the, the, I actually uh, came from a background of physics um, as an undergraduate and then I got exposed to biology and decided to do a PhD in neurophysiology, uh, working on the retina, trying to study the processing of signals and noise in the retina and also some pharmacology. And I, I, I wanted to study neural function uh, for someone coming from a physics background. That seemed like a, a very natural thing to do. That's what attracted me initially. But as I did experiments, I just got fascinated with the intricate wiring of the brain and the, the retina in particular, where I was you know, studying individual cells and became fascinated with how that precise wiring could possibly get assembled during development. Uh, I was fortunate to take a course at Cold Spring Harbor that was very influential for me. On, it, it was called Developmental Neurobiology. And, uh, and then and there, I, uh, what really caught my attention, what I got very excited about, was uh, activity-dependent rearrangements of connections that occur in uh, embryonic and, and early postnatal development. The work of Hubel and Weasel and others that shows that sensory input can modify the pattern of connections. Uh, that fascinated me, and I, and I thought that's what I, that's what I really want to study. It's sort of the intersection of development and activity. 
But uh, at the time, I also recognized that it was still very early days in terms of getting to molecular mechanisms for such a complicated problem. And a related problem, uh, sort of what sets up the system in the first place, is the problem of axon guidance. And at that time, there had been a number of, of advances made where people were able to reconstitute some guidance events in vitro. And I thought maybe this would provide an opportunity to, to get at molecular players that are involved in pathfinding. And I thought, well, um, you know, maybe I'll go work on that for a few years. And then when we're further along, I'll return to this problem of activity-dependent rearrangements. Well, guess what? I, I got so excited by pathfinding that that became my major focus for <laughs> several decades. Um, I, I still, we do work on other things as well, but uh, the, we, I didn't end up going back to activity-dependent rearrangements uh, quite as early as I thought. So that's what, what drove me to, to study axon guidance, the, the sense that the field was just starting to break open and that it might be possible to make some uh, significant advances, to make some contributions in the field. And that's essentially how things played out. One of the reasons I decided to go to work with Tom Jessel was because he's also had this combined interest in uh, neural function and the, the function of circuits and neural development, how circuits assemble. So in some ways, he was a kindred spirit. Uh, I was someone who come from, from uh, neural function and wanted to get into development. And it's a time at which he was really making great strides in, in studying development of the nervous system. So I was very fortunate to be able to join him at that stage. And then so to segue into the next question, with uh, Tom Jessel, you identified the floor plate as being the source of this attractive cue that was pulling these developing axons from the dorsal location to the floor plate uh, in the spinal cord. But the at the time, the, the molecules were unknown, and, and you showed in 1994 that, that uh, Netrin was the source of this uh, cue, and, and the work started with showing that in vitro you could get the axons to find their attractive source, you know, in this in vitro model of axon guidance. So uh, before talking about the discovery, what was known at the time in the field of axon guidance? And now, you know, reviews that you and others have written have these attractive and repulsive cues acting at short and long distances. What were people thinking? And then, you know, guide us through these early results and how they shaped your thinking. Well, you know, our understanding of axon guidance evolved over uh, many years. First of all, there was a debate as to whether axons were guided at all or whether axons move around at random and the, the ones that get to the right place are maintained and the others get culled. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, really the 1980s that techniques to visualize axons as they're growing to their targets were developed. And it was shown in, in all systems that were ex examined, vertebrate systems, invertebrate systems, that actually uh, axons know where they're going from the get-go. So that settled that issue, it was clear that axons are actively guided. Uh, then there was a question of what are the forces that guide the axons, and initially people really concentrated on one type of mechanism, which was the, the idea that axons are guided by uh, contact-dependent cues that instruct them on, on certain paths. There had been a theory from almost a century earlier from Ramon y Cajal that maybe there were diffusible chemoattractive cues made by target cells that could attract axons at a distance. But it wasn't until uh, the, the early 80s that the first evidence for these types of mechanisms was obtained. Mm -hmm. Simple experiments take neurons out of an embryo, put them with their target cells, and see that the axons are attracted by the target cells. That showed the existence of, of such attractants, initially in the peripheral nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, around the same time, there, uh, uh, people be, uh, started to realize uh, that positive forces aren't the only things at play, that uh, there are negative forces, guidance forces, repulsive cues. First evidence for contact-mediated repulsion and then later 
a long range of repulsion. So I'd say by the, the late 80s, it was clear that there were long range and short range attractants and long range and short range repellents. How widespread they were wasn't clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked with Tom, and this was work with another postdoctoral fellow, Marisha Placek and, and Jane Dodd's lab, and our collaborators, we, we, we showed that the floor plate can attract these axons that normally grow to the, the floor plate in vivo. They do so in vitro as well. Uh, that was the first evidence for an attractant in the central nervous system. There had already been evidence in the peripheral nervous system. So that's where we were. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of interest in many labs in trying to identify the molecules that mediate these effects. But it, it wasn't uh, really until the early 90s that the first cues started to be identified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among them were the, the, the netrins, which uh, we identified in work that I started when I was still with Tom, but then we pursued uh, in my lab uh, when I moved to UCSF of trying to identify the factor made by floor plate cells, which ultimately uh, we identified and, and called netrin. But around the same time, yeah. uh, uh, you know, netrins were also identified independently in C. elegans. That was a wonderful example of convergence of, <laughs> of, of guidance yeah. mechanisms. At the time, again, you asked me about what, what people were thinking at the time. At the time, people thought that the molecules that wire the mammalian brain would be uh, much more sophisticated and complex than those wiring the nervous systems of yeah. lower organisms. Yeah. So it was a wonderful um, a convergence when we purified netrins and uh, people working in C. elegans um, identified uh, the netrin UNC6 um, as a, a guidance cue as well. Uh, the same story, uh, the same thing occurred with a convergence of insights around a second important family of cues, the semaphorins, identified in, in insects on the one hand and independently identified in vertebrates right around the same time. And, and then that, that held up with the other major cues, the, the efferins, which were identified next a, a, a few years later. Mm-hmm. And then later in the late 90s, the slit proteins also. Those are the big four of axon guidance, if you will, the, the four major forces. There are many other cues, as we now know, uh, but those four major families are evolutionarily conserved. They, many of them, also the, the other thing that happened at the time uh, it was thought that some cues would be dedicated to attraction and others to repulsion. But it became clear, again, in many systems that the same cues can be used for attraction or for repulsion, and uh, depending on the receptor and the signal transduction pathways that are active in the responsive cells. So we went from understanding just that there are four forces to knowing many of the molecular players and the fact that they are multifunctional and evolutionarily conserved uh, over the period of about a decade. And a lot of that was done in about a five or six year period, a very, very exciting time in the field. How surprising was it that the, these molecules were conserved across um, phylogeny you mentioned earlier? And how fortuitous was it that, you know, you and I uh, had a lab right near Corey's lab and sort of were uh, um, in the center of these people approaching uh, similar problems from different yep. angles? Uh, it, it was a big surprise. Um, when, if you go back and read uh, reviews from the time, uh, there, there, there was a very famous review that was published um, in the, the late 80s that essentially said the, the rules for wiring nervous systems will be different in you know, uh, higher order organisms compared to um, uh, insects and, and, and other uh, invertebrate species. And that turned out to be wrong. And so the, the coming together, the molecular identification really, we really proved uh, the point. So very exciting. And, and it opened many avenues, as you say, for cross-fertilization from the different systems uh, and for collaboration. And it was fortuitous that my next door neighbor was uh, Corey Bargman and we ended up uh, collaborating on a number of things going back and forth between 
C. elegans um, and uh, invertebrates. Yeah. I also, you know, had a, a very long and deep collaboration with Corey Goodman at UC Berkeley at the time, who of course was a leader in the identification of guidance cues using uh, uh, grasshoppers initially and then Drosophila uh, after that, so uh, insects. Uh, and again, with the same theme of, of, of conservation of these mechanisms and a lot of cross-fertilization. Related to these studies on axon guidance, you chose the spinal cord as a model system. I guess we're curious how general you thought these findings from the spinal cord would be to the central nervous system with sort of a different complexity and environment that cells have to navigate. Well, the, this, the spinal cord, you know, has uh, uh, been a, a uh, used as a model for understanding uh, uh, higher order functions in, in, in the brain for many decades. Uh, I think early on, uh, uh, the you know, pioneering neuroscientists saw it as a, uh, a model for um, uh, the complex brain. Uh, and uh, it's very clear that the, the types of mechanisms involved in, in wiring and guidance uh, but also uh, the rules of, of um, uh, assembly and, and um, uh, uh, information processing are very similar uh, throughout the nervous system. So it turns out to be, but it, it's much simpler. So it turns out to be a very good model for many uh, purposes. Uh, I think we, we believe that um, all along. Um, you know, I joined, I started working on the spinal cord when I joined Tom Jessel, uh, who had decided to focus on the spinal cord precisely because it seemed like a more tractable mm -hmm. uh, part of uh, uh, the nervous system. And uh, we had evidence early on that it was likely uh, that these mechanisms were likely to be conserved. The, the, even in the first experiments where we found that commissural uh, axons are, are spinal commissural axons are attracted by floor plate cells. The floor plate extends uh, from the spinal cord through the hindbrain into the midbrain and the, the uh, caudal part of the diencephalon. And if you take floor plate from any of those regions, it's equally attractive to these axons. Moreover, when we started biochemical analysis, we, um, uh, we found that extracts of brain had a similar activity to what we saw in extracts of spinal cord. And ultimately, we decided to go ahead and purify the activity from brain rather than spinal cord because it was a much more abundant source. And, and, and our reasoning was this, that um, we, of course, canvassed uh, all known growth factors we could get our hands on and other factors to see if they were the chemo tract, and we didn't want to purify something that was already known. Uh, and But nothing that we tested could mimic this effect of floor plate cells. Um, and, uh, and over time, as we characterized the activity in floor plate extracts and then uh, found a similar activity in brain that seemed to have similar characteristics, we our, our bet was that it would be the same or a closely related factor that was present in brain. So we, we thought either we'll get the, the factor that's in floor plate cells by purifying this activity from brain or it will lead us to that, that factor. And in fact, that's exactly how it played out. We purified the activity from brain and we got a twofer. Uh, we purified not one, but two proteins, um, uh, which we called netrin one and netrin two. Uh, and they purified them both from brain. One of them turns out to be the factor in floor plate cells, that's netrin one. Netrin two turns out to be present in spinal cord as well um, at uh, lower levels. And it plays a role in, in, in helping the axons grow initially through the top part of the spinal cord. Uh, this isn't a chicken, and uh, so we we uh, the the uh, the bet paid off. As it turns out, in mouse, which is different from chicken, it's netrin one that does the job entirely in the spinal cord. Uh, but the key was we had an activity, uh, an assay with very high specificity 
Uh, and so when nothing could mimic the effect of floor plate cells other than brain extracts, we, we reasoned that um, uh, whatever was present in brain would be interesting. Yeah. And then going back to one of the things you said earlier, that uh, these same molecules that are used as chemoattractants can uh, also be chemorepulsive. Uh, I think that was an important principle in axon guidance, and your work had a, had a large role in um, helping to really discover and elucidate this mechanism. So can you talk about the case of midline crossing in the spinal cord and, yes. and how some of the studies from your lab about um, uh, initially being attracted to the midline by netrin and then once crossing being repulsed? Because I think that's a really interesting conceptual story. Yeah, so in our initial studies, we were interested just in how do you get from point A to point B? How do you get from the dorsal spinal cord to the floor plate? And, and trying to understand the attractive mechanism that gets the axons there and which led us to identify netrin. But they, the axons don't stop at the floor plate. It's just, the floor plate's just an intermediate target for these axons. Uh, they'll get to the floor plate, then they'll leave the floor plate. Um, they actually cross the midline of the floor plate. They leave the floor plate and move on to other parts of their trajectory. And in doing this, they're like many other neurons that, to grow long distances, don't grow in one fell swoop. What they do is they grow from one intermediate target to the next, to the next. And they, when they get to the first intermediate target, they reorient their growth to move on to the next leg of the, the, the trajectory. Uh, now, if you think about it, if you're attracted to an intermediate target like the floor plate, then to move on, it's actually necessary to lose that attractive response because otherwise you'd have difficulty leaving the floor plate. You'd be attracted back. And sure enough, that's what happens. The, the axons lose their response to the floor plate attractant, and they gain responsiveness to repellents made by the midline. So they switch at the midline, at the floor plate cells, from being attracted by floor plate to being repelled by the floor plate. Again, this was seen in multiple systems simultaneously, in the hindbrain by Fujio Murakami, in the spinal cord. We saw that in Drosophila, Corey Goodman and his colleagues, in the zebrafish, John Kawada uh, had evidence for this. So we, this principle of, of switching at intermediate targets you know, cropped up in a, in a number of systems. And it's something that we've been studying for uh, a number of years since then, trying to understand how you, uh, you switch, how do you lose response to the attractant, how you gain response to repellents. And at the, the most general level, that is a principle that must be operating all over the nervous system for every single neuron that grows more than a short distance. Neurons that grow short distance can grow in a, a straight line. They might not have to yeah. switch. But most neurons you know, in the nervous system have made a few stops at way stations, at intermediate targets, and so they have switched. And the interesting thing is we have very, very fragmentary understanding of how the switch occurs. We know some of the players. We know some of the things that do switch. Yeah. We know some of the, the regulators. Uh, there's a protein in Drosophila called commissurilis that's involved in, in regulating responses in in vertebrates, we've identified a protein called uh, you know, Robo3, a more divergent member of the Robo family of slit receptors that plays a role in, in, in the switching. We don't really have a handle on what the, the cue is at the intermediate target, the floor plate, that says, you've reached the intermediate target, now it's time to switch. You know, switch on repulsion, switch off attraction. What is the signal at the intermediate target that says it's time to switch? What's the signal transduction pathway within the growth cone? We believe that it's something that happens locally in the growth cone, doesn't have to go back to the nucleus, to affect this switch. How is the machine organized so that this switch can occur so accurately and precisely and completely 
It's not that the growth cone switches partially. It goes. It's an all-or-nothing transition. We have very, very little insight into that. That's something that we've been trying to learn more about for many years in the lab, actually, without a lot of success. So uh, I think it's one of the big open mysteries. Uh, I think of it as the elephant in the room in axon guidance. We know that this. We know a lot about the molecules that function as attractants and repellents, the receptors of immediate attraction and repulsion, some of the factors that switch at intermediate targets, but we don't know what triggers the switch at intermediate targets and how the whole program unfolds, even though it's happening all over the nervous system all the time in development. It seems like this would be one of the most, um, require one of the most precise timing biological mechanisms because the all, this whole group of axons has to be just past the midline. If it happens too early, that's, that's also going to be really highly detrimental. That's right. If you switch too early, it's game over. If you switch on repulsion before you get to the midline, you can't cross the midline. And we know that because there are mutants uh, in which, and the, the first one that, that was identified was in, in Corey Goodman's lab, the, you know, the, the roundabout mutants, that have that problem, that they switch on repulsion too soon. And so axons, in the most extreme cases, the axons can't enter the midline at all. In, in cases where the, it's partially impaired, what the axons do is they get to the midline, they might cross, but they'll stay around uh, the midline. They won't leave as effectively. And so it, it is, you're absolutely right, you have to choreograph this in a very, very precise way. And again, we don't know how that choreography um, occurs. I guess related to that, because you and others have identified so many of these molecules and their related functions, the bigger picture of the critical machinery needed for connectivity, in your opinion, seems to still be missing, I guess. Uh, a, a critical uh, a piece, yeah. The, the, I think it's been huge progress to identify many of the molecules of axon guidance. Uh, now, uh, I think the cr a critical piece, which is understanding this uh, switching mechanism, uh, still, you know, our, our, our knowledge is very, very uh, incomplete. What are your thoughts as to how to go about attacking that, that question, I guess? Well, the, the, uh, how, to, how to identify the, the switching factor. Um, again, the, the classical ways are you can take genetic approaches um, and you look for mutants in which switching is impaired and uh, you follow those uh, clues, and, and indeed that's what led to the identification of molecules like mm -hmm. Comaceralis, which again are part of the story, but uh, don't yet tell you what is the switching signal, right? Um, the other approach is, which is the approach that we take in vertebrate systems, is to try to reconstitute the switching events in vitro, and then use those in vitro assays as biochemical assays mm -hmm. uh, to try to identify the switching factor. That's how we identified netrin. We reconstituted guidance in vitro and then we purified netrin using the guidance event as a bioassay. Now for the, the switching factor, we've been stymied because uh, we didn't have a good assay in which we could monitor encounters of commissural axons with floor plate cells with sufficient resolution to be able to watch the switch occurring, which we can, by, we can do that by following proteins that go up and down okay. during switching uh, on okay. the growth cone. Um, we, we, our, our assays, uh, without getting too technical, most of our previous work had been done in collagen gels where axons are highly bundled. It's very, uh, it's hard to follow individual axons and to see switching occurring and to manipulate it. We needed to be able to turn it into a two-dimensional assay where axons grow sparsely and encounter floor plate cells. You can watch individual axon floor plate cell encounters. We now have that working. And we can see that the switch requires contact between the growth cone and the floor plate cells. That's the first step towards 
turning this into a biochemical assay. The next step is we have to find a more abundant source because floor plate cells, again, are too small a source to be able to do a, an ident a gene identification screen. And, uh, and uh, currently, we, we have not been able to reconstitute switching with brain extracts the way we did with netrin, which we would then have used for purification. So what we're trying to do is um, actually to, uh, to generate floor plate cells in large numbers by differentiating them from embryonic stem cells. So that's you know, a, a, one of the approaches we're working on right now to try to make synthetic floor plate cells, if you will, in large numbers to right. be able to, and, and if we can get that and get growth cones to switch when they encounter the synthetic floor plate cells, then we would have the perfect tool for gene identification whether it's through biochemical purification from those cells or by knockdown approaches of various kinds or knockout, you know, CRISPR knockout approaches. So there are a number of tools that would be available if we could get that to work. We don't have it working yet. So that's where we're putting a lot of our efforts. It's exciting. Yeah, it's fascinating. So though there's uh, much more to touch on in, in terms of the basic science, we also uh, in our time did want to ask about your other pursuits. So you um, have had a very unique path and going from academic science to Genentech and now being the president of Rockefeller and co-founder of Denali Therapeutics. So can you talk about your thought process in each of these transitions and uh, talk about the intersection between uh, your being both a, a rigorous basic scientist and uh, also using that same rigor in tackling uh, more applied questions of disease? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, to say a few words. When I started my lab uh, at UCSF, um, uh, the all I wanted to do was to to focus on the, the the singular problem of understanding how the brain gets wired up uh, during development. Uh, I was obsessed with it. Um, if you told me, you know, twelve years from now you'll be a, a biotech executive, I would have laughed at you. Uh, but what happened over time is that first we made progress in identifying molecules involved in in axon guidance. Secondly, we became excited by the possibility that that might be useful for uh, some applications like spinal cord regeneration, trying to get axons to regrow um, after uh, injury. And, and part of that had to do with you know, chance, uh, receiving funding from the uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America to, to uh, Spinal Cord Research Foundation to, to try to identify netron. And then when I went to the annual meeting, meeting people in wheelchairs um, who said, you know, this is terrific. We love the fact that you're doing this basic science. Could it help people mm -hmm. like us? And uh, suddenly waking up to the, the possibilities of applications, I'd say over a period of a decade, as I was immersed in the basic science, my interest in seeing the results applied grew. Um, I got exposure to the biotech industry, as one often does, especially living in, in the Bay Area. And so when Genentech came knocking in 2003, I was my mind was open to making a move to industry. I'd become very fascinated with the idea of applying uh, scientific knowledge to try to develop therapies that can help people with poorly treated diseases. But I, I also knew enough about the industry by then that I realized if I ever wanted to do this, I wanted to do it at a place where they were really good at it. Um, and Genentech, I was fortunate, Genentech approached me to come in and take over about two-thirds of the research organization wow. while maintaining a research lab. Wow. And initially my, my question was, um, uh, why would I do this? But over time, I realized the question became, why wouldn't I do this? Because I, I saw that I could maintain a research lab. I could learn um, and and try my hand at something that I thought was very important, that I thought I'd be very interested and excited by. 
and I was able, by then I, I was on the faculty at Stanford, I was able to take a, a two-year leave of absence. And I, I, after a while I thought, uh, why wouldn't I try this? Um, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, maybe uh, if I'm, I don't like it, or if I'm not successful, or if they don't like me, I could go back and run my lab um, at, right. at Stanford. But if I like it, then uh, you know it could be a transformative experience, and, and that's essentially how things played out. I moved to Genentech. I brought my lab with me. We continued to focus on mechanisms of axon guidance and related issues. Uh, but I got exposed to a whole new world. So I, I just feel my, very fortunate and blessed that I had that opportunity. It is, uh, of course, as you know, just a fabulous place. Remarkable scientists, exceptional leadership. Um, I learned from the best. And, and over time, I, I loved it so much, and, and I was able to balance the two that I gave up my tenured position at, uh, at Stanford to stay there. And I, I could be there to this day, except that you know, in 2010, mm -hmm. Rockmeller mm -hmm. came knocking. And, and uh, I was, uh, again, it's one of those things you look at initially and you say, why would I do this? And then eventually you ask yourself, why wouldn't I do this? Uh, Rockefeller is just a very unique place. I, I think it's fair to say, if I were a cancer biologist, I would probably still be at Genentech uh, at this time because uh, a lot of the most exciting things that are happening in cancer biology are happening in the private sector where you have the tools and the resources and the ability to work in the clinic and do science in the clinic, if you will, through the analysis of drug effects. Yeah. In neuroscience, and whether it's regeneration research or neurodegeneration, which my lab started to focus on starting about a decade ago, we added that to our, our, our studies of, of axon guidance. It's still much earlier days. Our knowledge is very incomplete. It's very hard, actually, to do drug discovery in those areas. And I realized that as a neuroscientist, um, what we're lacking is knowledge. You can only apply what you know, and we don't know enough currently in neurodegeneration, in neural regeneration, in neuropsychiatric disease to make a big dent the way that we are doing in oncology right now. And I realized that I could probably have a bigger pack, impact um, uh, even on applied neuroscience back in academia by helping stimulate the generation of new knowledge that then could be built on by the private sector. So as a neuroscientist, uh, and I've always seen this as a continuum between academia mm -hmm. and the private sector, as a neuroscientist, I, I thought I could potentially have a bigger impact uh, back in, in academia. I've been able now to also apply the learnings from industry in the academic environment here because it turns out a, a, a large fraction of our faculty are interested in applying their uh, the discoveries that they make, the fundamental discoveries they make in the lab. Uh, about two-thirds of our faculty, when I polled our faculty in my, when I first arrived, a third of the faculty really are focused relentlessly just on, on the basic science. Uh, they are very enthusiastic about application, but don't want to do it themselves. Two-thirds of our faculty were actually interested to varying degrees in, in seeing and in being involved in applying their research. And I was able to take some of the knowledge from Genentech and help with other colleagues here um, build some of the infrastructure that facilitates that for our faculty. So uh, I just feel very blessed. I've had wonderful opportunities and, and at each stage to, to be able to work with uh, remarkable people. So I guess what I would recommend is if opportunities come your way, consider them seriously. And for me, it's I've had the opportunity to grow and to learn at each stage, and I feel in that way to contribute uh, in, in many different ways. Oh, those are some invaluable insights. Mm -hmm. Just to wrap up, can you give us a preview of your talk next week? Right, so a, a brief preview of, of my talk. 
Well, I'm going to start with a new story that we have, uh, again, on axon guidance in the spinal cord, where we've identified a new axon guidance cue. It's called NEL2. And what's remarkable about it, we, we identified it in the context of studying a, pro a protein called Robo3, I mentioned it earlier, um, that's involved in regulating slit response. Well, Robo3, we first found, is involved in slit regulating responses to slit. Last year, together with our uh, collaborators in the Chez Tal lab and others in, in Paris, we found that it, it's also involved in, in regulating responses to netrin. And, but we had a hunch that um, there was something else that was missing in our understanding of Robo3, that there was a high affinity ligand that was missing. And we went out to look for it biochemically and, and found this NEL2 protein. Mm -hmm. And NEL2 binds Robo3 and triggers repulsion via Robo3. So uh, it, the, the, the picture that emerges with this new guidance cue, NEL2, is that Robo3 is like a Swiss army knife. It does at least three things. It, it inhibits slits, it potentiates netrins, and it mediates repulsion from NEL2. Right. So it's a very fascinating story, all of which conspire to get the axons to the midline. So that will be the first part of my talk. I'll talk briefly about our interest in axon degeneration, but then mm -hmm. our study of axon degeneration has led us into um, trying to contribute to this, this very exciting field right now of brain clearing mechanisms. Uh, there's a lot of, of interest in being able to clear the brain, to be able to visualize connections and biochemical changes throughout the adult mammalian brain with the development of a number of different brain clearing procedures at, at Stanford. Of course, Clarity uh, was developed by, by Carl Dyseroff and, and his colleagues. And uh, we were trying to do something slightly different, and so we developed uh, a method uh, that we call iDisco. And I'll talk about the, the development of this method and its application as well, partly because I think it will be of interest to uh, many people at Stanford. It's complementary to some of the other brain clearing yeah. uh, methods that are being developed today. Wow. So those I'm, I'm, I plan to, to touch on. Uh, axon guidance will be, I guess, the, the major portion at the beginning, and then I'll say a little bit about regeneration and talk about brain clearing. Wow, that sounds really exciting. We're uh, very excited for uh, the talk and... Um, and in a couple you. weeks and meeting you. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. The episode was produced by ADE, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk and our radio show, Brands and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.